Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Hey, do you have a minute? Yeah. We just spent three, three and a half hours with Amanda Bowling, Brian's sister. Wow. Okay. She told a story which I found heartbreaking. You know, after it all happened, Josh was sitting on her parents' bed and he was crying and, and emotional. And she went in and hugged him and said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. It'll all work out. And uh, it's heartbreaking because that was a genuine, like she genuinely felt that way and I think she loved Josh and then she now thinks he did it you know at the moment did she think it was an accident that that he had shot Brian or did she think it was like Brian she thought Brian had done it because that's what they're being told so yes she believed it was Russian roulette or just somehow Brian shot himself and she did not doubt that in the aftermath of Brian's death though his family did begin to have doubts about what Kane Joshua's story had told them. And investigators would later conclude that Brian's injury had not been self-inflicted. That he had instead been shot by someone else. Eventually, Kane would be charged with Brian's murder. But investigators also concluded that he hadn't done this crime alone. They believed that he had to have had help. And that's how Lee Clark ended up being charged in this case as well. Everybody keeps insisting he was there. I don't even understand why Dallas Battle or the cops had to physically put him there. They couldn't believe Kane could have done it or Josh. It, it made sense. This makes sense. Of course it was Lee who put him up to it. Of course it was. They are just certain that Josh would not have done this alone. He couldn't have done it. That they can't get past. So there has to be a Lee or someone like Lee. Lee had to have been there. Otherwise, Josh wouldn't have done it. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. 
Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Proof. Floyd County, Georgia, is a little over an hour northwest of Atlanta, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. The town of Rome is the county seat, set among seven hills, just like the Italian city it's named for. Rome is a mid-sized town, with a cute downtown area, with shops and restaurants that line the main street. The community of Silver Creek, where Brian Bowling and Kane Story grew up, is about 10 miles south of Rome. It's a rural area, and on the stretch of highway where Brian and Kane lived, there's only one commercial establishment, the Silver Creek Mini Mart. It's a little convenience store just a quarter of a mile from the Bowling's trailer. Last year, we met up with Lee's brother, Jamie, who showed us around where Kane and Brian had lived. And on our way, we stopped by the Silver Creek Mini Mart. So I'm going to drive up on this road here. Yeah, and yeah. Make a left. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that sign say Bitcoin? Yeah, it does. Yeah, a lot of... I'll take Bitcoin here. Really? Yeah. Bitcoin and live bait. A, mortgage, a Bitcoin ATM and live bait in one store. Oh, it's got Ding Ding in there, too. It's got what? Ding Ding, yep. Yeah. I ain't never played Ding Ding. I... No, what's Ding Ding? Oh, my goodness. It's so fun. What? It's, it's gambling. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, turn left right here. Man, this is so grown up. None of this was grown up like this back then. It was all flat grass. I mean, you can see it's changed so much. Back when Jamie was a kid, he and his brother would often hang out in this part of Silver Creek. Okay, so who's older, you or Lee? Lee. He's got me by two years. Were you guys close growing up? Yeah. Yeah, we was real close. Uh, my dad let me hang out with him. Well, tell me about his friend group. Had a little group. It was me, uh, Doug, Don, Kane, which uh, some, some of them call him Josh, but most people know him calling him Kane. Brian, we all run together. We'd hang out in that cemetery around his house and stuff. Uh, we'd go over to Kane's house and spend the night. One Friday evening in October of 1996, it was just Jamie, Lee, and Kane hanging out together. They'd driven around, listened to music, smoked a joint, nothing too exciting. And then Kane had showed them the revolver, a Smith & Wesson 38 Chief Special. Kane said he'd taken it from his father's bedroom. That night, uh, I got, Lee and Kane had been riding around, and um, I, I, they picked me up in Lindale. And then we pulled in here, dropped Kane off. He got out of the car, Lee told Kane, and he'd get that gun back to his daddy's safe and uh, put it up. Kane said that's where he was going, was going home. And that's the last we've seen of Kane. Which way did Kane go? Um, he went on the other side of the store. He went behind the store to the road back here. This road back here goes right down past Brown's house. Should we head over there?
The trailer where Brian lived is still there behind the Silver Creek Mini Mart, but it's been abandoned for years now. It's broken down to the point that the first time Susan and I went there, we couldn't even recognize it from the crime scene photos. Um, Your destination is on the left. Really? Oh, there it is. That's it? That's the trailer? Are we sure that's it? No, but... How come nobody puts a... Uh... Yeah, why does no one believe in mailboxes and And I numbers? thought he lived across the street from a cemetery. That could be it right there. That's it. So I think we go down that road. Down the creepy road next yep. to the cemetery? Jamie had no trouble finding or recognizing the place that 25 years earlier, he, Lee, Kane, and Brian would all hang out. Um, right here, right up here, this first road to the right, right there is Brian's trailer, right there. I ain't never I ain't been up here in 20-something years. Jamie and Lee say that after dropping Kane off at the Silver Creek Mini Mart, they'd driven back together to Lee's apartment in the nearby community of Lindale. Kane says that he started walking back home from the Mini Mart, but on his way there, he passed by Brian's trailer and decided to stop in, with his father's 38 revolver still in his pocket. According to investigators, though, Lee and Kane had not actually parted ways that night. They'd gone to the Bowling's trailer together. Only, Lee hadn't gone inside. See, right back here was Brian's room right back here. You can see the window here. This window was an important part of the murder case against Jamie's brother, Lee. According to investigators, Lee had been standing outside of this window when the shot was fired. Brian's sister, Amanda, and her husband, Kenneth, told us why it makes sense that Lee would have used this window to get to Brian's bedroom that night. You know, Brian's window was busted, so he had a piece of plywood up, you know, it, to just cover the bottom part because that was all that was busted. And, you know, Josh knew it. Everybody knew his little window was broke, you know, and you could get in and out without having to go through a door or anything. You know, that's why when we did hear about somebody being at that black window, at his window, the reason why the board was down and stuff, I mean, it'd been easy just to pull that curtain back and be standing right there. Jamie confirmed for us that he and Brian's other friends had often gone in and out of the Bowling's trailer through the busted-out window. I remember sneaking in the house uh, many a time. On the back side back there, there's a piece of wood. We'd move it out of the way to get How out. would you move it out of the way? Just uh, slide it out of the way, like in his in his room. So it was inside his room, so you just kind of yeah. reach in? And... Yeah, we just like slide it down. And, I mean, we, we snuck in and out that window all the time. How'd you guys get in and out of the window? The bed was right there. I mean, we leaped in, just leaped in the window. Uh, back then, we could leap. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't now. I could like roll over in there. Ain't no <laughs> way I could leap in that window now. Kane's story was the only other person in the bedroom with Brian when Brian was shot. But the busted out bedroom window explains how Lee Clark could have participated in this murder too, even when everyone agrees that he never set foot inside the trailer that night. According to investigators, the scenario looks something like this. 
You have Kane inside the bedroom with Brian, pretending to have stopped by for a friendly visit, when really he's just there to keep Brian distracted. And then you have Lee lurking outside the bedroom window and sliding the loose plywood board aside so that he can peer inside the room. And finally, there's Brian, sitting on his bed, talking on the phone to his girlfriend, his back to the busted out window, oblivious to what's going on behind him. And then either Kane or Lee pulls out a gun and shoots Brian in the head. So that's how Brian Bowling was killed, according to the case of trial. But what about the why? Why would these two teenagers have conspired to murder their friend? And why did the community think they were capable of such a crime? To understand that, we need to take a closer look at the three boys involved in this case and the friendships between them. When we talked to Amanda Bowling, she showed us some family photos of her brother, Brian. <laughs> that was him. Let me see. Uh, <laughs> and that one. That was when he was little, giving the finger to. <laughs> this one cracks me up because look, he's all in his suit. Yes, we was at a wedding. Proper. <laughs> then Amanda came across what she thinks might be the very last picture ever taken of Brian. And this one was taken in August of 96. So that was wow. the last picture we have of him. Wow. But I don't. You can see he's like. You know when boys go through that phase? Yes. All of a sudden they like grow tall and like yes. start looking like started men. looking like men. And, and he did. He had slammed up, you know, and he was yeah. tall. And he was very handsome. I didn't realize how handsome my brother was until afterwards. Back in 1996, Brian's best friends were Kane, Joshua Story, and another boy named Tommy Hyde. Tommy lived up on the hill. Oh, is he Kane's neighbor, or Josh's neighbor? Yeah, okay. Josh's neighbor. So he had been, Brian, him and Brian were best friends too. All three of them. They were three peas in a pod. Kane, Tommy, and Brian all lived on the edges of the Pleasant Hope Cemetery, just a short walk from one another. Brian's uncle Michael, who also lived near the cemetery back then, remembers them hanging out together just about every day. I would say Tommy was his best friend, and Josh would have been the second best. Those guys were always together. Now Lee was his friend, but Deborah and Rocky didn't like Lee. I'm not sure exactly why, so he was supposed to stay away from Lee. Brian's sister remembers that Josh would sometimes bring Lee by their place, even though Brian's mom and dad didn't like Lee coming around. Lee, I'd never met Lee until probably my, I was like 14. Because he just popped up up here, you know, up at Josh's house. And whenever he was around, he wouldn't come down to the house that much. They would walk by. Mm -hmm. And my brother was always outside, you know, and they would he would stop him, you know, and they would chit-chat for a little while. But when Lee was around, Josh never would hang out with Brian. He wouldn't hang out with us. So would you say Lee and Brian were friends or? Not so much as friends, but friend of a friend. 
According to investigators, Lee Clark had been in a gang with Brian Bowling. But everyone, including Lee, agrees that he and Brian only ever hung out when they were with their mutual friend, Kane slash Josh Story. I was friends with Brian, but I wasn't, I wasn't close with him like Kane was. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Kane, Kane lived right there in the neighborhood with him. Kane spent him pretty much every day. I would just see him here and there when I went over. And it wasn't every time I went over to see Kane, I'd go see Brian. It wasn't like it. He was too much for me. That hyperactive stuff, I'm not like it. I'm a laid-back, easy-going type of guy. I just wanted to do stuff, take it easy, chill. I liked Brian, and I liked him as a friend, but I just wasn't close with him like Kane was. I asked Lee what he meant about the hyperactive stuff, and he told me a story about one time when he, Brian, and Kane had all been hanging out together. I mean, I've been with him and Kane walking down the walking down the street from his road crate road to cross Rockmore Highway. And we're crossing the highway and I've seen him get out there in the middle of the highway and lay down in the middle of the highway with them trucks coming down through there. And it's dark as hell, you can't see shit. And I'm like, man, what the hell are you doing? They said, oh no, watch this, watch this, watch this. They'll stop. I said, you stupid ass, they can't see you, man. They're gonna run you over. But he would do that just trying to get attention. Other friends of Brian's that we talked to told us similar stories about Brian playing chicken on motorbikes or dodging trains. And Amanda told us that the incident Lee recalls with Brian on the Rockmart Highway was not the only time her brother had done something like that. You've heard this one? Yeah, about him laying in the road right here. He used to do that out here all the time. And- I would always be irate with him, you know, get up, get up. Why would he do that? He just could, because he could? Yeah, just because he was just a, a joker, just always getting in trouble, doing stuff he wasn't supposed to be doing. According to the transcript, your brother was on home arrest at the time? House arrest, yeah. He had went off with somebody and got into some trouble after my daddy had a brain aneurysm. He had a gun charge because he had stolen a gun out of that house. It was an old gun, you know, it didn't work, but, you know, he still stole it from that house. So he got that charge. He got a bunch of charges that day, a lot of charges. It was through the juvenile courts. Mm -hmm. Um, So the judge, he was expecting to get sent off, Mm. you know, and now I kind of wish they would have sent him off. Amanda, like most kids in Silver Creek, had attended the nearby Pepperell High School. That's where her brother had started off in school, too. But because of some of the trouble he'd gotten into, Brian had been transferred up to another school in West Rome. Yeah, well, he rode um, one of them little short buses. Got kicked off all the time. So, but, uh, so he rode one of them. A school, I've heard it called? Yeah, behavioral school, yeah. So that would be a school, something like that. Like alternative school? Yeah. It was while attending a school in Kusa that Brian Bowling had met his girlfriend, 15-year-old Caprice Hyatt. Hi. How are you? Good. Hi, I'm Jacinda. We stopped by your mom's earlier. When we showed up on Caprice's doorstep, it was October 19th, the day after the anniversary of Brian's shooting. Yesterday was anniversary. I already know. I know. I'll never forget it. I'm sorry. I it's know. been 25 years, and I'll still never forget it. 20, yeah. 
Yeah, it was rough. It, it grabbed me up real quick. Brian Bowling had been Caprice's first boyfriend. I was 15 and he was 15 and I went to Coos High School and he went to the A school which used to be behind Coos in the trailers and um, he was on the little short bus that took him home all the way across town. And I was walking and he just hollered at me off that he was on the bus. <laughs> he was like, hey, can I get your number? I was like, I was like, sure, he was cute, you know. <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was kind of like my first little puppy love thing. And then he called you? He did. And we talked up until the day all that happened. But it was natural. It was like, I mean, he, he was head over heels and I, I was smitten, you know. Did he asked you to be boyfriend and girlfriend? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he did that, you know, first time we talked, he said, I just, I seen you and I just knew I, I wanted you to be my girlfriend. <laughs> first time you talked to the phone? Yes. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, what can you say to that? But okay. <laughs> because Caprice and Brian didn't attend the same high school, and because they were 15 and couldn't drive themselves anywhere, they weren't able to meet in person all that often. Mostly, they talked on the phone, which they did just about any chance they got. You know, like, I got out of school, we, he either called me or I called him, and we were on the phone, like, until my, my mama got me off. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what we did. On the day that Brian was shot and killed, Caprice, like usual, had called him as soon as she had gotten home from school. Brian was usually around to answer. He was, after all, on house arrest. But it had been Brian's brother-in-law, Kenneth, who answered the phone that day. He told her that Brian wasn't home yet. She'd have to call back later. Brian was working with the children that day. He was working with them. Because he had got in a bunch of trouble like the week or so, or a couple of weeks or a month or so before. He had gotten a bunch of trouble. I got mad with him again and tried to tell him, look, Brian, you're messing up, because I done been there, done that, done messed up my life. And I told him, I said, look, man, you're going to screw your life up, you know. And he went to work with the children, try to, try to get back, you know, doing something, try to not get away from people. Brian's family told us that in October of 1996, Brian had been trying to turn his life around but he was still hanging out with friends that his family thought were a bad influence on him. And as his Aunt Melody told us, that's what she thinks led to his death. He just ran with that, with the, with the crowd. Brian had never been arrested. Not to my knowledge, not unless someone kept it from me. But uh, if they did, they kept it from my mom too. But um, you know, I mean, he wasn't perfect. You know, um, typical boy, uh, 15 years old, you know, but he had a good heart and um, it just really destroyed our family. I divorced, my brother divorced, my mom and dad divorced, Deborah and her husband divorced. And I mean, it was just, you know, a lot of chaos. I mean, it yeah, it, it did, it just shattered. And, and it wasn't about the, the trial or anything. It's just, you know, emotions. I guess. Yeah, yeah. At the time of Brian's death, his family had not considered Kane Joshua's story to be one of the bad influences in his life. 
because Josh was just, Josh was a funny, you know, we all goofed with him, you know, he was just not the type of person to have any kind of violence in him. He was not a violent person. Josh and Brian had been so close that, to the Bowlings, Josh was basically family as well. Brian's uncle Michael told us that before Brian's death, he hadn't been aware of any conflict or bad blood between the two boys. Josh and Brian were at my house like constantly, you know, they're good friends, so they were there almost daily. Even the day before that happened, uh, Josh and Brian was at my house and I had a barn and uh, they weren't shooting guns, but they were shooting water guns, running around shooting each other, you know, so. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things, and that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because, not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like, like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. 
from Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. We met Kane's mom, June Story, at her home in Rome. She lives in a double wide at the bottom of a steep hill, the kind of hill that makes you feel like you're on a roller coaster ride, but somehow scarier. We don't have that far of a drive, though, do you? No, it's like a mile. Uh, it's too bad. This makes me real nervous. This road? Coming up over this hill? I can't see a damn thing. When we finally made it to her place, you could tell immediately that the years since Kane's arrest and conviction have taken a toll. Kane's dad passed away a few years after the trial, and June says she spends most of her time thinking about the what-ifs. You know, I was just hoping he would graduate from high school and go maybe to college, and they didn't want to go to college, just find a nice lady and get married and have children and things like that. Just a simple, normal life. Normal life, yeah. And how did it turn out? It turned out pretty bad. It really did. Now, I mean, that's why I think God will give people the knowledge to see the future. If I had seen the future, I would never probably ever been able to, to bear it, to, to know that that was going to happen down the line. June showed us pictures of Kane from when he was in high school. He is tall, almost six foot three inches, and rail thin. And although he was 17 in 1996, he looks much younger. You can hear the pride in her voice as June describes the pictures. That was in one of his uh, spring concert at Pepperell High School, he had a music program. They were singing some songs. So he was active in school. He was active as music goes, and you know he, uh, yeah, he was. He wasn't like in sports. He wasn't like in all that stuff. But he, he loved music. In fact, uh, one of the concerts they had, he sang before a crowd of about a thousand people. On paper, Lee and Kane might not have seemed to be the likeliest of friends. They had very different interests and very different personalities. One of those differences was Kane's musical talent. They wanted to be a musician. They wanted to be a musician. That's what they wanted to do. And I'll give it to him, Kane. He can play a guitar and he can sing. He's got a beautiful voice. He does. So his big plan was to get a band going? Wanted, yeah, that's what he wanted to do. That was, that was his dream. He loved music. He still does love music. Lee remembers that Kane and some of his friends put together a garage band. It's a band from Kane and his little buddy. And it wasn't no big stuff. It's just some stuff they get together over Kane's house on the weekends. They made their little guitar stuff. Lee told me he didn't know much about the garage band or Kane's other musical pursuits. It wasn't something that Lee shared Kane's interest in. I can't play instruments, and you sure don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> it sounds like a cat being thrown off the top of the Empire State Building. Back in 1996, it had seemed like things were going well for Kane. He was still attending the regular high school, playing in the band, participating in his church's choir. And before October of that year, he didn't have a record. I don't think he had a record. I don't remember seeing No, he didn't. He didn't have no record. Hey, Kane was kind of squeaky clean. He was kind of squeaky clean. Lee's brother Jamie told us that when he first heard Kane had been arrested in connection with Brian's death, 
It never occurred to him that Kane might be accused of doing something to intentionally harm his friend. Do you remember the first time where you heard that Kane was a suspect in Brian's death? Because like went on before Lee came in, but do you remember hearing that Kane was a suspect? I do. Um, uh, and I thought Kane was just a suspect for bringing the gun down there. And, and on the same note, you know, I, I, I could have seen Kane accidentally shooting the boy by accident, you know, when that happened. I could have seen that happening. Um, you know, because he was just goofy like that. He'd trip over Cordis phone. I mean, uh, that was just Kane. A lot of people we spoke to while investigating this case told us that on his own, Kane slash Josh would never have gotten involved in any kind of murder conspiracy. That just isn't the kind of kid that he was. In fact, Brian's uncle Michael believes that it had to be because of Lee's influence that Josh went along with what he thinks was a plan to murder Brian. Everyone describes him as kind of like a follower and sort of a, I don't want to say weaker personality, but... He was. I mean, and that's what we all kind of thought, too, that Lee had more influence over him, you know. And I think, honestly, like I said, that Lee was either in the room or outside the room kind of making Josh do it because I don't think Josh would have never, ever, ever harmed Brian, ever, on his own. It wasn't just Brian's family who felt this way. A lot of Kane's and Brian's friends told us something similar, which wasn't something we had expected when we first started looking into this case. Wow, I mean, it's just, the, the, the interesting thing is that, is that some people really think that Lee is capable of orchestrating all of this. And um, I guess I didn't expect that going in, you know? I didn't either. Meanwhile... Kane, Josh, just looks like a goofy, lanky, crying mess. He does not look sinister. He does not look like someone capable of organizing all this. He looks just like a goofy, lanky teen. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to cast it as a film and cast, like, the movie as, like, a killer and and the guy who's his follower, you would cast, you know, Lee as the, as the lead guy and Kane as the follower. Like, that's how you would cast it. Lee is well aware that even before Brian's death, there had been people in Kane's life who thought he was leading his friend in a bad direction. Well, he went to school at Pepper High School. He always had this old uh, goody two-shoes persona around him. You know what I mean? Yeah. People looked at him, and, and, and there's people in high school. I remember when I was still going to school before I quit, we kept telling him, man, what are you hanging out with him for, man? Like, I was just this bad influence. Like, I was just a straight piece of trash. Since being incarcerated, a lot of things have changed for Kane. For one, he no longer has that squeaky clean record. Went, went down the wrong path. Which, hey, he's famous for going down the wrong path. Over and over again. It kills me. In the 24 years after their arrest and conviction, Kane and Lee ended up serving time together at three different prisons in Georgia. But it's now been several years since they last saw each other. Kane's disciplinary record means that he's ended up in higher security facilities. Lee told us more about Kane's life in prison. Every time I call over or talk to my mom or something, I get little updates. Something about Kane's did this or Kane's back in the hole or this and that. 
that boy ain't never gonna learn. 41 years old, still ain't learned shit. I don't think he's got no good common sense, Susan. That's what I think it is. The boy ain't never had no good common sense. Common sense takes you a long ways in this world. When it comes to books, the boy's a genius. He is a genius when it comes to books. When it comes to music, he's a genius. I'll give him that. When it comes to good common sense, he ain't got none. Period. When we began working on this podcast, I reached out to Kane through his mother, June. I asked her to let him know what I was doing and to tell him that I was hoping to hear his side of the story about what happened that night in the bowling's trailer. June got word back to me that Kane was adding me to his phone list, and I was hopeful I'd soon speak to him. He didn't call, though. When I talked to Lee about this, he was frustrated but not surprised. I mean, I don't make no sense to me. Me, if, if Rose will be reversed... As soon as I would have heard about all this, I'd have been trying to find some kind of way to get in contact with you right then. It sounds like he's found a way to exist right now, and he doesn't care about changing. Yeah, he has. done told me before. He said, look, man, he said, we're going to die in here and all this mess. I said, look, Hank, I said, I'm going to tell you right now, brother. I said, I'm not dying in here. I said, I'm not going to do it, man. I said, I ain't going to sit here and sit there and say that I'm going to die in prison for something I didn't do. Man, that don't even sound right, man. I said, you... You're just giving up any hope of ever getting out of this place. Not long after that, I received a letter from Kane. He said he'd been trying to reach out to me, but the facility that he was at would not let him call. In his letter, he described the events of the night that Brian was shot and closed with the following. We did not kill Brian Bowling. We are two innocent men who have been incarcerated since we were teenagers for a murder that never happened. Brian killed himself while playing Russian roulette with my father's gun. Where Lee was at, I do not know. All I know is he was not at that house that night, and I did not kill Brian. Almost everyone who knew Brian Bowling and Kane's story agree that acting on his own, Kane would not have killed his friend Brian. They believe that Kane's involvement in this crime can only be explained by some kind of outside influence, by someone who was standing outside of Brian's window and who either shot Brian themselves or who forced Kane to be the one to do it. So what is it about Lee Clark that made people think he could have been the someone standing outside the window that night? We reached out to Lee's dad, Glenn, for an interview. He suggested we meet at the church where he is very active, just a short drive from where he lives in Cave Springs. My name is Daryl Glenn Clark. Tell us where we are today. We are at Live Oak Baptist Church in the town of Cave Springs, Georgia. And why, why did you suggest this location? What, is, what does this church mean to you? Well, this church right here, it's just there's no better place to be in the house of the Lord, huh? And uh, just thought it'd be a good place to be here. When he was growing up, what did you picture his future would be like? Well, I've been in tree business all my life, okay? And uh, I maintained right away for utility companies. And uh, I, I thought maybe he may fall into that, you know what I'm saying? Because there, there really wasn't nothing else. Here in this town, you either work in a cotton mill, carpet mill, pants factory. That's what they got here. 
Glenn Clark's vision of what his son's future might have been isn't much different from how Lee imagines things would have gone too if he hadn't ended up being arrested for murder when he was 17. If this hadn't happened to you, where do you think you'd be? Me? Honestly, I'd probably be out there somewhere right now cutting trees with my dad right now. I'd like to think that I would have me a little bit of money saved up. I'd like to think I'd have me a wife and a couple of kids by now. I'm going to be 41 years old, and I really want kids. I want them bad. I just can't get out there to get any. I feel like I'm at a point in my life right now that I've really got my head on my shoulders good, and I feel like I'll be a great dad. Back in 1996, part of Lee's imagined future had already come to pass. He was already cutting trees with his dad. It was a job his dad helped him get when Lee decided to drop out of high school. Yeah, I was a dropout. I quit that in the ninth grade. Yes, I quit and had my dad sign the papers that I ain't going back. If you don't sign the papers, I'm just going to skip. And he told me, he said, okay. He said, I got something for you. He said, you want me to sign the papers? All right. He signed them. As soon as we got back to the house, he said, come here. I said, what's that? He said, that's a job application. Fill it out. I said, what? I said, man, you're crazy. He said, boy, I'm going to tell you right now. He said, you think you're going to quit school and you're going to lay right here? It ain't happening, hoss. Fill them papers out, but you going to work. And he put me to work the next day cutting trees. I thought I was grown. I really literally did. I was working full time, making making money, paying the bills, and thinking I was grown. And not knowing the whole time, I was a long ways from it. You couldn't tell me nothing. I thought I was the shit back then. I thought I had it going on. I, I loved to get in front of my buddies with my older girlfriend, hang out with her. Thought I was real cool. Thought I was real hip. That's so sad. I, I ain't lying. If I could go back and just see my 16-year-old self, I guess that's the way it is with us wrong boys. We all think we the shit that we finally figure out we ain't. But then it's too late. Glenn doesn't disagree. He says Lee thought he had it all figured out, and it was starting to get in the way of their relationship. Now, you were saying that when Lee became a teenager, he started to butt heads. Yeah. And Lee started to get into a little bit of trouble. That's right. Tell me about that. I think the most thing that irritated me about him that I would, I would give him, you know, a job. I mean, I supervisor. I put him on crew, and he liable to work one day and not work next two days, and that would really crawl under my skin. And I, I really stayed mad at him for that. We started butting heads for kind of that. I mean, I was mad with him. And I said, look, you got to take up some responsibility. Go to work, do your job, you play after you do your work. That comes later. So that's kind of when we started, you know, kind of drifting away a little bit, you know? Lee's parents and Kane's parents were friends when the two boys were growing up. So Glenn Clark knows Kane's story, too. Tell me more about Lee and Kane's relationship. Had they been friends all their lives? Yes, ma'am. When uh, they're, they're months apart, and they've been knowing each other all their lives. All their lives. They raised up with them as kids right on up. I think after we, I don't know, six, seven years old, we kind of we moved away from them, but... But they've been long life friends. Even though the boys grew up together and had been close all their lives, Glenn no longer approved of his son's friendship with Kane. Him and Kane were running around together. 
And uh, I know Cain's mother brought Cain over to our house one day and dropped him out. And uh, when Cain got out of the car, he was cussing his mama, saying some words that, that I wouldn't tolerate. And I told Lee, I said, look, you need to quit hanging around with that boy right there. I said, he's going to get you in trouble. I said, he ain't no good. He's no good. Lee's brother, Jamie, has a slightly different perspective. He thinks Lee and Kane were equally bad for one another. Yeah, Lee and Kane were real close. Um, uh, I don't want to say the wrong thing about nobody, but they wasn't best for each other, I'd say. I mean... They was always into mischief, I guess, which I was right along with them most of the time. What kind of mischief? What kind of trouble did you guys get into? Oh, just kid stuff. Doing stuff, get, uh, strolling my dad's tools everywhere, you know, stuff like that. Stuff we wasn't supposed to be doing. Things we shouldn't be doing, too. I'd call it terrorizing the neighborhood a little bit. Like, we might find a dead animal or something, set it on somebody's porch just for fun and giggles. Like, wasn't nothing funny about it, but we didn't realize that then. We was kids. Not all of what Lee and his friends were up to was just kids' stuff, though. Have I told you how bad I was with this telling nose, Susan? Have I really told you how bad I was with that stuff? How bad were you? Okay, let me tell you. Look, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't just steal that stuff from Kane's mom and daddy. I didn't just steal it that safe from them. Look, I steal stuff from my own daddy. I steal stuff from my stepdad, my mom's uh, ex-husband now, because I, I thought all that stuff was cool. I was just stealing stuff from people all around the neighborhood. People didn't live in the neighborhoods with me. I thought I was just hip. I thought I'd just do whatever I wanted to do. Wasn't thinking about the time that people were putting in, hours that they were sleeping every week to get this money, to buy these things, to put in their house, to give their families, to buy stuff for them. I wasn't thinking about none of that stuff. Didn't it? None of that stuff mean nothing to me. I mean, yeah, when I was, yeah, that's, and as far as that goes, yeah, that's the worst things I've ever did. I was a thief when I was a kid. I was an idiot. Lee's dad told us that for a while, Lee and his friends had been able to get away with what they were doing. Yes. Detective Battles and some of these other detectives and all, they had caught on that they knew these boys, that Lee and Kane were doing this, but they could not catch them. Lee's brother Jamie says it wasn't just what Lee was doing that caused him to be a person of interest for local law enforcement. It was also what Lee was saying. So you think that Dallas Battles' problem with Lee was not so much the bad kid stuff he was doing, but his, like, disrespect of... Yeah, disrespect toward the law. Yeah, I mean, because he, he was disrespectful toward him. Tim, what did, what did your brother... <laughs> what are some of the things that your brother would have said to him? Oh, I mean, look, they'd walk, the cops would walk up, and he'd be like, I, I smell bacon. Y'all smell that? He'd be, what the hell you want, pig? Uh, what, you, what you doing? And, uh... You know, just kind of t tell them uh, you got a problem and walk off from them. Uh, they wouldn't know what they could do. There was one officer in particular that Lee often had run-ins with. 
Floyd County Police Sergeant Dallas Battle. Overall, I think it, that was the basic fact of what got me was the way I talked to him. How did you talk to him? I talked to him real shitty. He used to ask me about burglars and stuff I was doing. And I told him I ain't out here doing no burglaries, but if I was, I wouldn't let no stupid motherfucker like you catch me. And I hate to say it like that, but that's the way I was back then. I mean, that's, that's the way I would talk. How do you react to that? Do you say anything back? Oh, Dallas? Yeah. Oh, he just used to tell me he was going to get me one day. Yeah. He got me, too. He got me good. On the night Brian was shot, Sergeant Dallas Battle became the lead investigator on the Brian Bowling case. Right away, he concluded that Brian's death had been an accidental, self-inflicted shooting. A game of Russian roulette in which the odds hadn't gone in Brian's favor. But a few days after the shooting, Sergeant Battle changed his mind, and he began to investigate Brian's death as a murder. Next time on Proof. Yeah, I heard something about a pillow. What'd you hear about that? Somebody told me that they found a pillow where it was, a pillow was used for a silencer or something. Mom had told them that somebody had put something in there. And they said, well, Miss Bowen, the only way we're gonna be able to know that is if we examine his body. So you don't really know when you learned about the Freebirds or when they were? Not me, I don't remember. I, 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 I wanna say it was probably after they had dug him back up about the little, stuff they had found in the casket and everything. After the funeral is when it actually happened. We were getting in the family car to leave to go to the burial and they were screaming out the window. And I was trying to pull them out of the car and we kind of everybody started fighting, you know. Yeah, there was several people throwing punches. I don't know who they were. Okay. I mean, it all happened so quick. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode three. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, starting this Thursday. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hasuski, and our theme music was by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos, Adam Goldstein, and Michael Yulitowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening.